This episode of Navarra Live is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you. Welcome to Navarra Live. I am once again Michael Walker, and today I'm joined by Helena No Justice MTG on YouTube and Twitch. Um, a pleasure to have you back. How are you doing? I'm not doing too bad. Thank you for having me. As always, looking forward to the show. We've got some big stories coming up tonight. Israel's assassination of free Palestinian men inside a hospital in the city of Jenin has pretty much you know, shocked a lot of people. People saying it looks pretty much like terrorism. They're dressed up as doctors and nurses. You've probably seen it. They get their guns out. Um, Northern Ireland is set to have a government from Stormont again after two years without one. I speak to a great guest who explains it all. Um, and a more light-hearted story. We look at the case of Lawrence Fox, who's lost a libel trial for calling two people paedophiles. Um, stay tuned for all of that. Lots to discuss. Let's get on with it. Like Joe Biden, the UK government has been consistently humiliated by Benjamin Netanyahu's public opposition to a two-state solution in Israel-Palestine. The two countries have given Israel pretty much unconditional support in its genocidal war on Gaza. But when it comes to defining the purpose of that war, Netanyahu just hasn't been playing ball. Right? They say, we want a two-state solution. This is all in aid of that. Netanyahu's like, no, I don't. I don't want a Palestinian state. We want all the land. Um, now, that potentially explains this development today. So Britain's Foreign Secretary, David Cameron, has said the UK is considering recognizing a Palestinian state. Britain has long supported the creation of a Palestinian state, but has so far only suggested it would recognize one as part of a final agreement with Israel. So Israel obviously would have blocking power. Cameron is now suggesting Britain could recognize Palestine before then. In a speech on a trip to the Middle East, he said there would first have to be a new Palestinian authority, quote, stood up quickly with, quote, technocratic and good leaders able to govern Gaza. And he said this, together with that, almost most important of all is to give the Palestinian people a political horizon so that they can see that there is going to be irreversible progress to a two-state solution and crucially, the establishment of a Palestinian state. We have a responsibility there because we should be starting to set out what a Palestinian state would look like, what it would comprise, how it would work, and crucially, looking at the issue that as that happens, we will, with allies, look at the issue of recognizing a Palestinian state, including at the United Nations. That could be one of the things that helps to make this process irreversible. Now, recognizing the state of Palestine before a deal with Israel would not be a particularly radical move. The majority of the world's states already do that. So the vast majority, in fact, of states at the UN already recognize the state of Palestine. But it would have added significance as Britain is a key ally of Israel. So normally, you know, we don't go along with the majority of the world when they are sort of criticizing Israel or supporting Palestine. David Cameron is suggesting that maybe um, he's moving in the right direction on that. The Palestinian ambassador to the UK, at least, appeared enthusiastic. Hassam Zomlot tweeted this, This is historic. It is the first time a UK foreign secretary considers recognizing the state of Palestine bilaterally and in the UN as a contribution to a peaceful solution rather than an outcome. A UK recognition is both a Palestinian right and a British moral, political, legal and historical responsibility. If implemented, the Cameron Declaration would remove Israel's veto power over Palestinian statehood 
would boost efforts towards a two-state outcome and would begin correcting the historic injustice inflicted on the Palestinian people by colonial Britain's Balfour Declaration. Now, I suppose there's sort of a, you know, a couple of interpretations of what Hassan Zomlot has said here. It might be that you know, he, he's somewhat concerned that this might be all talk from David Cameron. Of course, David Cameron isn't saying he wants to immediately um, recognise the state of Palestine. It's still sort of talking about it. It's still putting it into the long grass to some degree. He's just saying Israel won't have a veto. But I wonder if Hassan Zomlot is you know, trying to ramp up, I suppose, the significance of this status, of this statement, sorry, from David Cameron, because that, you know, that would be in um, Palestine's interest. So he's called it the Cameron Declaration, which I think might be an attempt to sort of stroke David Cameron's ego, um, hoping that, that that will make him sort of follow through on what he has intimated towards. Um, Helena, do you think this is significant from, from David Cameron? And presumably, um, he, he, you know, he had, he had the support of the UK government in doing this. It's definitely been a weird history for David Cameron with regards to his position on Palestine. From Saeed Avasi resigning from his cabinet in 2014, given his response to Operation Protective Edge, much more recently being unable to say whether or not Gaza was occupied during a foreign affairs select committee, and now to his position of bringing the UK government to the position where they could potentially recognise a Palestinian state without there being... So, um, the agreement with regards to the Israeli government. This is a very significant moment, I think. So again, with the caveats that this is only a potential, this is a future thing that they might do given the right conditions. But given the fact that this is further than any other British government has gone, I think we have to at least hope, at the very least, that this will further lead to Palestinian statehood, because that is the first place that you can have to get to along a peace process, right? The Oslo process, which had recognition of Israel and then future recognition of Palestine based upon agreements with Israel, had clearly not succeeded in bringing us peace up to this point. And as you say, plenty of other states around the world recognise Palestinian statehood when we don't. And I think that this has also been given our the Western's backing, the West's backing of Israel, sorry, this real roadblock towards a sustainable peace and a a viable Palestinian state. I think there is a genuine concern amongst the current government in their proximity to what Israel have done so far and are trying to at least recoup some of that ground in terms of their positioning, given their essentially carte blanche they've given to Israel during what they've done in Gaza and in the response to the ICJ judgment and provisional measures that have been ruled down. I feel that they do need to somewhat lessen their position of uncritical support of what Israel have been engaging in, given what we've seen especially very recently with regards to this this congregation of people there, including government ministers wanting to resettle Gaza, which would be in clear violation of international law and the, and the blockades along the Karem Shalom border crossing. So that does seem to be where I think this position has come from, a desire to try and save face in the face of international pressure. What I would also say is that it does seem to be really frustrating being on the left a lot of the time, given that this has been the position of the left essentially for a very long time in terms of wanting to have some form of unilateral recognition of a Palestinian state without Israel being involved. This was essentially Jeremy Corbyn's position, at least that ours was going to be immediate rather than with some conditions. And it's not even the current position of the Labour Party who want to have 
Israel's permission to be able to do that recognition, which they changed only recently. So it seems very odd to me, especially since David Lammy, even in response to this, said that he welcomed the Conservative government's agreement with their position, that they just changed to not be that. And given that whilst we understand on the left that this has to be the position on the road to peace, the fact that everyone else has taken so long to get to where we've been all the time, pretty grating, I must say. I'm not sure how... Um united the left will be on this question because obviously there are very strong divisions about the one state or the two state as a potential solution now i always say you know i think it would be strange to draw dividing lines when both are so far sort of in in the future when both seem quite unlikely it would be strange i think for people to fall out over the one state two state question but i do know that some people you know in a in a you know i don't think an unreasonable way were almost appreciative that netanyahu made what they think is a reality on the ground clear, right? So for lots of people, they think the two-state solution is basically just a farce, which is put forward um, by Western politicians and sort of Israeli liberals to mask the the, the one-state reality, which is one of apartheid. And so there were many people sort of saying, yes, I mean, it's Netanyahu saying this isn't disgraceful. It's, it's actually good that obviously Netanyahu is disgraceful, but him saying this is good because it's making explicit what has long been Israel's policy. And they want the world to sort of understand this not as a struggle for an independent Palestinian state next to Israel, but for the liberation of of Palestine or sort of the decolonization of, of Palestine. So it's no longer apartheid. Um, I suppose the other view um, is is to say that, you know, the most realistic option, I mean, as I say, I'm agnostic about this. The most realistic option is to have um, two states. And the only way you're going to get there is with a shed load of pressure um, from international governments who say, look, Israel, you're going to have to let a viable Palestinian state come into being. You're going to have to take your um, settlers out of the West Bank or we're going to put massive sanctions on you. I think either way, we need to put massive sanctions on Israel. Um, and then the end state, as I say, I'm somewhat agnostic about. My concern here is, I, you know, I, I'm not convinced David Cameron is being particularly serious here. If, you know, the government were to stand up tomorrow and say, we are going to impose sanctions on Israel, we're going to withdraw all support unless they take practical steps to you know, make way for a Palestinian state. Yeah, I'd take that very seriously. But him saying, uh, we might not wait completely until Israel lets us to recognize Palestine. It doesn't cost anything, right? It's, it's a very easy thing to say, which makes it seem like you are moving in the right direction. And I think most importantly, distances David Cameron from Netanyahu, because it was very embarrassing um, for Joe Biden, for Rishi Sunak, for all of the Western powers who are supporting Israel, that he said, I have no interest in a two-state solution. I have no interest in peace. So I, I don't take what David Cameron has said too seriously, especially as, you know, when he was prime minister, sort of he talked about how the settlements were terrible in the in the West Bank, but then he never did anything to put any pressure whatsoever on Israel to stop expanding them. Or I think, of course, um, they need to be withdrawn. We will be coming back to these issues of course. Um, let me know what you think. Do you think David Cameron, you know, is it, at least it's moving Britain in the right direction? Or do you think it's just, you know, it's all talk, it's a farce, um, and potentially um, hides the true reality behind the situation, which is that a two-state, or you might think that a two-state solution is impossible, um, and we need to all get used to the one-state reality. Let's move on to our next very much related story. For nearly four months, Israel has conducted a violent assault on Gaza, but there has also been growing violence in the West Bank with frequent raids on towns, hospitals and civilians. 
According to the UN, over 360 Palestinians have been killed by Israeli forces or settlers in the West Bank since the 7th of October. And last night, Israel's aggression in the territory reached new heights. In the Ibn Sina hospital in Jenin, IDF soldiers disguised as medical staff and civilians made their way through a hospital corridor brandishing automatic weapons. As some of the soldiers moved out of view, one man was forced to his knees where an item of clothing was taken from him and placed over his head. More soldiers moved through to other parts of the hospital, one carrying a wheelchair and another with a baby carrier in her hand or his hand. Those soldiers went on to execute free Palestinians in the hospital. Footage of the aftermath of those killings shows bloodstained floors, walls and bedding. Al Jazeera journalist Rory Challens reported that, quote, it does, not no, it does not look like there was any attempt to arrest these men. They were killed as they were sleeping. Hamas has confirmed that one of the men executed in the raid was a member of the group, the IDF, says he was planning an imminent assault, quote, inspired by the October 7th attack. But the head of surgery at the hospital told NPR that the man was a patient, paralysed and in a wheelchair. Of course, the hospital was also full of other patients and civilian visitors. The head of surgery also said this. They raided one of the floors in the hospital and attacked the hospital staff. They raided one of the patient's rooms and killed him and the people who were in the room with him, his brother and friend. He's also reported as saying this, what happened is a precedent. There was never an assassination inside a hospital. There were arrests and assaults, but not an assassination. Islamic Jihad has said that the other two men assassinated were their members. Hamas has called the killings, quote, a vile crime that will not go without response. It added, quote, the resistance forces who have sworn to fight the occupation until it is expelled are not afraid of the assassination policy. So Hamas says they aren't afraid of Israel's assassination policy, and some Western observers aren't impressed by it. This was Sky's military analyst, Michael Clark. So it was an assassination. Now, um, in terms of the, the legality of this, um, after 7th of October, there is a legal justification for that, whether you believe it or not, but yeah. they, they can claim that yeah. this is legal. They've been going after Hamas wherever they find them because of what they are and what they do. Um, but doing it in that way is very suspect and is tactically foolish because it makes Israel look like Hamas. It makes it look as if they're doing Hamas's job. What they should do, and this is the council of perfection, is that they should go in as uniformed police uh, or uniformed troops, surround it, try to arrest the people they're after, and if they resist, then you shoot them. That's what you're supposed to do. Of course, it's very hard to do. But taking on this sort of assassination by playing at being hospital um, uh, employees is not a clever idea tactically because it just strengthens everything that people say about the IDF and what they're doing in Gaza. It strengthens that sense that they're behaving a bit like the terrorists themselves. The IDF are behaving a bit like terrorists themselves, right? We've been saying that for months, of course, but you don't expect to see that frankness from the mainstream media. Clark's claim about the legality of the assassination is at least questionable, though. Killing wounded fighters or those receiving medical attention is a violation of Article 12 of the Geneva Convention, of which Israel is a signatory. Perfidy is also a war crime. So I only learned this today. It's defined in the Geneva Conventions and means tricking an adversary into believing you have civilian protection before betraying that confidence. Now, dressing up as a doctor to kill an enemy definitely fits that definition. 
Now, it seems like the characteristic example, really, of that perfidy. You dress up as a doctor or a nurse, go into a hospital, then unleash um, your weapons, your guns, and, and take a, a few patients out. Now, whether or not they were members of a militant organization, that, to me, um, doesn't seem like it conforms to the rules of war. Look out for that next time. Israel's in the Hague. Let's go straight on to our next story. We'll be coming back to Palestine later in the show. Northern Ireland has not had a functioning government for nearly two years, but that looks set to change after the Democratic Unionist Party agreed a new deal with the UK government that's set to restore power sharing to Stormont. This was DUP leader Geoffrey Donaldson announcing the deal. The party has concluded that subject to the binding commitments between the Democratic Unionist Party and the UK government being fully and faithfully delivered as agreed, including the tabling and passing of new legislative measures in Parliament and final, final agreement on a timetable, the package of measures in totality does provide a basis for our party to nominate members to the Northern Ireland Executive thus seeing the restoration of the locally elected institutions. The DUP collapsed the power-sharing government in February 2022 in protest at the Northern Ireland Protocol, effectively shutting down the region's administration. That protocol, of course, was Boris Johnson's so-called oven-ready post-Brexit arrangement that created what the DUP saw as trade barriers between um, Britain and Northern Ireland. So essentially they fought a threat to the Union. Then... In May 2022, the Nationalist Party Sinn Féin won the most seats in Northern Ireland's Assembly election, making it the largest party in the region for the first time. Um, Sinn Féin elected Michelle O'Neill as Stormont's first minister. The DUP came second in that election, losing its top spot in Stormont. But because the Good Friday Agreement guarantees that power in Northern Ireland must be shared between nationalists and unionists, the DUP had the right to elect the deputy first minister. But the DUP refused, meaning that no new government could be formed. What all this meant is that no new laws have been made, no new budgets have been drawn up, and the people of Northern Ireland have been left without any political representation. And Sinn Féin called a press conference today. Um, future First Minister Michelle O'Neill appeared alongside party leader Mary Lou Macdonald. And this is what Macdonald had to say. I very much welcome the fact that the DUP have now moved to explicitly recognise and respect the outcome of that Assembly uh, election. And uh, we look forward now to getting things, getting the job done, uh, getting ministers in place, having MLAs uh, return to the chamber, and of course, uh, Michelle O'Neill taking up position as uh, First Minister. And of course, that will be a moment of very great significance, not simply because we haven't had government for so long, but because, of course, it will be the first time that we will have a Sinn Féin First Minister, a Nationalist First Minister. So a mark, I suppose, of the extent of change that has occurred here in the North and indeed right across uh, Ireland. The deal agreed with the DUP was negotiated with the UK Northern Ireland Secretary Chris Heaton-Harris. I believe that all the conditions are now in place for the Assembly to return, and I look forward very much to the restoration of the institutions at Stormont as soon as possible. There was a financial package worth over £3 billion offered to the parties before Christmas. This will absolutely be available to an incoming executive. 
So not a lot of clues about the deal there, except that three billion pounds will be offered as a sweetener. Um, earlier today, I spoke to Neve Campbell, a reporter with the Belfast Telegraph, who has been covering the DUP's deal announcement. Whenever Sinn Féin brought the government down, uh, we were without an assembly for three years. We are now four days ahead of the two-year anniversary of the DUP bringing down power sharing in February 2022. It has gotten to the stage, I think, where Jeffrey Donaldson and many of the people within his party have realised that it can't really go on for much longer. We've seen increased tensions, uh, increased criticisms. Public service workers here have uh, been on, it seems like, just countless strikes by the stage. And it's apparent that Chris Heaton-Harris and the Conservative government aren't going to release the funds to get them on par with the, the rest of the um, their counterparts in the rest of the UK who have gotten their pay raises. The government offered, initially it was £2.5 billion in funding that they were going to give in a package, financial package to Northern Ireland, obviously on the condition that uh, devolution would be restored. They had talks with all the parties here in Hillsborough just before Christmas. Uh, Chris Heaton-Harris was there for one of the days. Then they managed to negotiate and get up to over three billion. I think it's three point three billion being offered. But again, that was under the condition Chris Heaton Harris said that devolution had to be restored. So I think a lot of people here assumed that no one thought that Jeffrey Donaldson was going to, um, you know, come out with the statement that he came out with last night before Christmas. But a lot of people did think that it would be coming in January. But I think it has gotten to the stage now where he's realised, and I believe the majority of his party members as well. And maybe the the quieter voices within unionism, quite often the, the hardliners tend to be the louder ones. We saw that with quite a lot of the protesters that were outside the DUP's party executive meeting last night. But a lot more of the quieter, uh, more maybe not as hardline unionists within the party and within its, its voters have realised that I think enough is enough now and people need to get back to government for, for the people of Northern Ireland that voted for them. So the explanation you've given there is sort of, you know, pragmatism, potentially money and funding. I mean, I assume the DUP is sort of going to come out and say our concerns we had about the UK constitution have to some degree been assuaged. So, you know, the, the formal reason that they weren't entering into devolved government is they said that the, the Windsor framework still um, left Northern Ireland out in the cold compared to um, Britain. Um, as I understand it, as you say, there are some unionists who aren't happy with that. They, they think that this is probably going to be a bit of a fudge. The constitutional issue still remains. They're not happy about it. And I know there was a very dramatic meeting last night that you were reporting from. So the DUP inside discussing whether to enter a devolved government and, and protesters outside opposed to it. Could I get you to, to talk about what happened last night? So firstly, Jeffrey Donaldson, he had a quite a busy day. He had met with his MPs at the DUP headquarters in East Belfast at around 4pm. And then on Friday night, an email had been leaked. So the the party's chief executive, Timothy Johnson, had called this sort of surprise meeting of there's around 130 party executive members in the DUP. On Friday, he sent out an email saying that there was going to be a, a meeting on Monday night. The location had not yet been revealed. It was all very hush-hush, very secretive. But that was leaked to a loyalist blogger, Jamie Bryson here, who uh, is quite prominent. He sort of sees himself as... I guess the self-proclaimed voice of that grassroots loyalism um, and he's seen as the voice of that sort of hardline loyalism and unionism that I had talked about. So he had leaked that. Uh, obviously all the media, everyone had found out that this meeting was going to go on. 
He then also leaked the location at around, I think it was half four or 5 p.m. yesterday that it was going to be in Larchville Estate, which is a, a very popular wedding venue on the outskirts of Lisburn, which is actually uh, in Jeffrey Donaldson's constituency. It's up a very long lane. There was no way of any members of the public, any of the media getting up to it. But someone inside the meeting, so a member of the DUP's party executive, and apparently it's quite a senior member as well, uh, reportedly wore a wire into the meeting and was relaying thus all of the details back to Jamie Bryson, who was live tweeting it uh, on X. And this just caused complete chaos. I'm not actually sure how many more followers he got because of it, but it was a lot. All the politicians were commenting on it. Many unionists as well had seen it as detrimental. You know, they were saying Doug Beattie, the, the leader of the Ulster Unionist Party, had said that, you know, him and Jeffrey Donaldson and the DUP have had their differences, but he said that humiliating and embarrassing the leader of the DUP and the party like that was not good for unionism at all. There were statements coming out that apparently the police had been called in to block phone signals because Jeffrey Donaldson actually stopped the meeting and said someone in here is on their phone leaking this bit by bit to Jimmy Bryson. Uh, the, P- the police service of Northern Ireland came out and said that no such thing did happen. They didn't go in and block the phone signals. It has since come out today that whoever was leaking it uh, was doing so with a wire. Uh, Jimmy Bryson has confirmed that himself. He said that he won't say who that member is, but he believes that such is the, the discontent within the party with the decision that Jeffrey's made to go back into Stormont based on this deal. That person felt that they needed to do that, that they needed to relay it back to Jimmy. But, you know, I was at the press conference last night, which was about four hours overdue. Uh, Jeffrey Donaldson arrived at 1am and personally, I've never seen him so passionate about this. He came out and he said that the things that were posted in social media were not reflective uh, and were a complete misrepresentation of Wimp and Dawn inside the meeting. He said, and I quote, that he's seen more misinformation in the last few days than he ever wants to see again in his life. One of the journalists had asked him whether he feels that he, the word betrayal had been used because of those more hardline voters and members of his party that don't want him to go back because they feel the DUP's seven tests haven't been met by the government to get them back into power sharing. Uh, and Jeffrey had replied that never had the word betrayal been used among the party in that way, but the word betrayal was used that night, last night, for the person that had been leaking all of that information outside. So he's very, very passionate about it. And I do believe that it added a lot more um, stress to, to an already stressful day for him. One thing that's going to be interesting about this story for for people in Britain is this idea that there hasn't been a regional government for for almost two years now. I mean, has that really affected people? Have people have ordinary people in Northern Ireland noticed the absence of Stormont, or is this you know a sort of political story that only political nerds are following? A lot of people will tell you. People on the street will say it hasn't affected my day to day to day life. You know, um, we've been here before. I try to explain this in really simplified terms to my friends because they are so disillusioned. A lot of people don't even see the point in voting anymore because we we faced this road before whenever Sinn Féin brought down the government in 2017. It's happened again. I mean, and I think for people in the mainland UK, they probably do think it's ridiculous. How can we go without, how, how is that even allowed to happen? Um, but it does, I think it actually affects people a lot more than they do realise. Obviously, as we were saying, those public service workers, uh, health workers, nurses, teachers, uh, 
transport workers, so many people haven't been able to get their pay raises, to, as I said before, to, to match with their counterparts in the rest of the UK because that money's been frozen to them. The health service here is completely crumbling regardless of that anyway. That's another thing on top of it. There's just so many laws that can't be passed. There are laws that were ready to be passed, but um, are to stalemate now because the government was brought down. For example, things that I learned, uh, you know, just reporting on other things, it all comes back to this. It all comes back to having a stalemate at Stormont. There are, I think, something around 18,000 houses that are sitting empty in Northern Ireland at the minute. And we're facing a severe homelessness crisis. Uh, people live in hotels, people sofa surfing, people on the streets. But there's 18, nearly 20,000 houses that are just sitting empty. And apparently the legislation is sitting there ready to go to implement a new strategy to get these houses sort of brought up to living standards, to get people in there. But they can't do it because they can't, they don't have a minister to sign off on it. So there's so many things like this that have knock-on effects. And it is sort of sad that the politicians here and the way politics has gone has left so many people leaving so disillusioned. And so many people I know just said that they don't feel like there's any point in voting again. Um, they see a lot of the, just the green and orange, a lot of the parties as being the same. Hopefully it can translate to them that we do need Storm it up and running again. It can, it, it'll work better if it is up and running again um, for all those laws like that to be passed through. But it's it's the politicians' fault that uh, so many people have, have been led to feel that way here over the past few years. The Belfast Telegraph, who you, you you write for, it's sort of usually associated with with political unionism, and this is going to be the first time that in in Stormont the first minister is a nationalist, so from Sinn Fein. I mean, could you talk about the sig- significance of that and how that's being felt? I suppose both in nationalist and unionist communities in Northern Ireland. Hardline unionists won't like it. Uh, I think the more moderate unionists don't really mind. Similar on the national side as well. Obviously, uh, it's it's great and it's historic historic day for nationalism. One thing about Michelle O'Neill as well, though, you know, she has no direct links with you know the troubles herself. She wasn't in the IRA or anything like that, as uh, many many previous members of Sinn Fein have been. So it's massively historic the fact that she is, you know, she's a working class woman that comes from rural County Tyrone. She's actually not too far away from where I'm from. Uh, It is historic, but, you know, I think a lot of people as well have tried to claim, a lot of hardline Republicans on on the other side of the coin have tried to claim that maybe Jeffrey hasn't been going back into power because of that, because that the DUP don't want to go into power sharing with a Sinn Féin nationalist first minister. But I don't think that is true. I, I really don't. Um, one of uh, the journalists that was there last night at the press conference as well, Amanda Ferguson, had asked Jeffrey, you know, who's going to be, who are you going to put forward for Deputy First Minister? Uh, I think the bet's on that it's going to be Emma Little Pengali, who was co-opted as an MLA into his Lagan Valley seat so that he could remain as an MP in Westminster. Uh, again, another sort of younger female uh, DUP, more moderate unionist voice. So that's yet to be seen. But I think at the end of the day, People knew it was coming whenever Michelle O'Neill, whenever Sinn Féin won the majority of the seats in the Assembly election, that's now coming on two years ago. So I think people have had enough time to get used to the idea and everybody knew that it is coming, but it is definitely a historic day. I think overall Sinn Féin across the island of Ireland, in the Republic of Ireland as well, I think they're now, you know, the biggest the biggest party whenever you take in both sides of the border. Uh, so it is monumental. Straight on to our next story. From its New York studio, CNN has done some terrible reporting throughout the war on Gaza. In particular, their main host, Jake Tapper, is happy to amplify every talking point the Israelis offer, or he seems to be, if you look at his output, um, seemingly whenever they please. 
However, um, their reporters on the ground in Gaza have done a much better job, including with this latest report about the IDF excavating Palestinian graveyards. This is no ordinary quarry. It's where the living once buried their dead. Gaza's Bani Sahela Cemetery, hollowed out by Israeli excavators. These were all graves. This was a cemetery, but the military says that they were forced to come in here because they discovered a Hamas tunnel running right underneath that cemetery. But the Israeli military failed to prove that stunning claim during a three-hour tour of the area. They invited us here a week after we first uncovered this graveyard's partial destruction using satellite imagery, part of a CNN investigation that found 16 cemeteries in Gaza damaged or destroyed by the Israeli military. This whole area here is a military compound. From the mosque over there, underneath the graveyard, all the way down north and south. My forces, the beginning, we try to flank this area, were fired from this area again and again and again. They couldn't understand why. So that's how you determine that there was a, a tunnel here, because you were being fired upon. Yes, sir. So the context of this report is really interesting, right? The IDF didn't randomly decide to take CNN to a Palestinian graveyard they dug up. They didn't think, oh, this would be a great thing to show CNN. CNN, come to this graveyard we've dug up. No. Instead, CNN discovered that the Israelis had been digging up graveyards by looking at satellite imagery, right? So they sort of discovered this against the IDF's will. And now the IDF are trying to cover their backs. They're saying, what you thought you saw, actually, there's a different story here. So let's see what evidence the IDF managed to muster that these graveyards were a legitimate target for destruction. Our journey to investigate the Israeli military's claims begins in the rubble of what they say was a residential building. Even just standing at the mouth of this tunnel, you can feel the humidity just like emanating here. And this is the way that we go in to what they say is an extensive tunnel system in Bani Suhela. We descend into a dark, seemingly endless labyrinth. There's just tight spaces like this in certain parts of this tunnel. But then you get here and you have full headspace pretty much. All throughout it, you can see that there's electricity, there's telecommunications. The Israeli military says that this tunnel system actually leads to a Hamas command center, which they say was used by Hamas fighters to coordinate their attacks. The Israeli military says this is that command center. Multiple rooms equipped with plumbing and electricity. Maps like this once lining the walls. You can see a kitchen here equipped with a sink, running water, with the pipes running through the tunnel wall. You have a fan, plates. I mean, you could imagine this being in a house, but instead it's deep, deep underground. So the IDF have shown the reporter an extensive underground tunnel network. Now, we do know tunnels had some civilian uses in Gaza. The Strip has been under siege for 16 years, and the tunnels were one way goods could get in. But there is no doubt they also um, had a military purpose. So does that mean Israel had proven they had a right to dig up Palestinian graves? Let's keep watching. Where are we right now? I mean, what's above us? So we're in the headquarters of a Hamas commander. Uh, above us is a cemetery uh, that I showed you from the outside. 
if you look at the satellite imagery of this cemetery, there is a wide area that the military has cleared. Why is that necessary in order to uncover these tunnels? We had to reach the tunnels. We had to reach the tunnels. We had to uncover the tunnels. We had to prevent from the enemy to flank us. But there's no way for us to verify whether we are actually beneath the graveyard. General Goldfuss takes us back out of the tunnel, but not into the cemetery. Instead, we leave the same way we came in, before walking back to the enormous hole where the cemetery once stood. Please, hold on a second. Yeah. We're asking the general if we can actually see the shaft to the tunnel. But the answer is no. So? There's all kinds of machinery which I don't want you to, uh, just to take pictures of. The security of my force. What about if we don't film it? We just no look with our eyes. If we... you might fall in, the whole thing can collapse. Or you have to walk to the edge. The edge is not secured. It can collapse. There's machinery, so on. That's, it's not something I'm going to take a risk on. Can you show me proof the tunnels you just showed me are actually under the graveyard you destroyed? No, because you can't film the military equipment. Okay, can we look with our eyes? No, you might fall down the hole, right? It's a very, I do have a girlfriend, but she goes to another school vibe, right? It was not convincing. And it gets worse. The Israeli military later provided this drone footage, showing the tunnel shaft we entered and another one nearby. CNN geolocated the footage using this satellite image. This outline shows where the cemetery once stood, and these are the two tunnel entrances clearly outside the graveyard. As for the tunnel they say they found here, where the cemetery once stood, the military never provided any evidence. Now, you've got to remember, right, CNN, I think, discovered around 16, didn't they say, 16 cemeteries that had been destroyed by the IDF. And this was the IDF's attempt to say, oh no, this wasn't just a, a, an act of cultural vandalism, you know, a desecration of the Palestinian dead. No, this was a military um, mission that was necessary to get these tunnels. Now, of all of the cemeteries they had destroyed, one can presume that the IDF chose the one to show CNN that they thought was most persuasive, right? Because the IDF controlled the Gaza Strip, but journalists can't go anywhere without their say-so. So they presumably thought, of the ones we've destroyed, which is the one that we have the strongest evidence actually had a military purpose for Hamas? They chose this cemetery, and they didn't realize that maybe showing a tunnel near a cemetery would be enough for a decent journalist. They would want to see that the tunnel was actually under the cemetery, and they could provide no evidence, which suggests there isn't a tunnel under the cemetery, right? Because if you've got, you know, the IDF are in complete control of this area, if there is a tunnel under that cemetery, they would be able to show it to CNN. So what is going on here, right? What is going on? Oh, well, it's the Israelis lying again, right? The Israelis lying again. You know, there were moments in that clip where I sort of, you know, I thought the ridiculousness of what the IDF general was saying was sort of entertaining. Oh, no, you, can't, you might fall down the hole. Right, there, is, there is a sort of dark humor to it. But this is incredibly serious. And I mean, it, it is in this situation unclear what's happened to the corpses in the cemeteries destroyed by Israel. But Palestinians have long accused Israel of stealing bodies exhumed from graveyards in Gaza. And Israel has confirmed to CNN that during this war, it has intentionally exhumed some dead bodies of Palestinians. They say this was to determine whether they once belonged to hostages. So they said, well, we were just looking for dead Israeli bodies. It just so happens. And we dug up a bunch of Palestinian ones. 
Now, this week, dozens of dead bodies have been returned to Gaza by Israel, where they are being buried in a mass grave. Palestinian health officials said the remains were of Palestinians who had been killed by Israeli forces during their offensive and whose corpses had been dug up and taken to Israel. One doctor at the site in Rafah told Reuters, quote, We have received a hundred bodies, including full bodies, half bodies and body parts. He went on, We don't know where they were injured or even their names. That's the third transfer of bodies from Israel to Palestine since the war began. Those are all people, right? This isn't just numbers, right? These aren't just corpses. These were living, breathing people being killed by an ally of the UK, by an ally of the US, and then dug up. Well, some of these, we, we don't know what, what the, the background with all of these bodies, but some of them, um, it seems, have been exhumed and so many Palestinian cemeteries destroyed, right? These are horrors, as we always say, backed and enabled by our government. This is not a tragedy. It's a crime. So, oh, so shocking, that story. I, I have to say, I do find it quite interesting the way, with, with lots of media organizations, I think sort of the commentary which has come from the journalists who are based in Western offices, so based in an office in New York or based in an office in London, has been completely appalling. But then whatever journalistic outlook outlet you, you you look at, apart from, you know, talk TV with Douglas Murray sort of putting on his flak jacket and pretending to be a war correspondent, right? Everyone who has actual real journalists on the ground, they are uncovering Israeli crimes because it seems, you know, if you are a journalist in that region, it's impossible not to, right? So you, you often do have this sort of disjunct, I think, between the commentary from people far away and then what people on the ground are actually saying. Let's go to our next story. We've got two more to go for this evening. The most dislikable man in Britain has found himself with a massive legal bill. Lawrence Fox was sued for libel after calling former Stonewall trustee Simon Blake and drag artist Crystal paedophiles on social media. Those comments from Fox were unsurprisingly described as harmful, defamatory and baseless by the judge in the case. Um, but there was also a counterclaim made by Lawrence Fox. So he had suggested that Crystal, Simon Blake and broadcaster Nicola Thorpe had libeled him by calling him a racist. So they said, they're saying I libeled them by calling them paedophiles, while they libeled me by calling me a racist. Well, Lawrence Fox lost that part of the case as well. And the reason is fairly entertaining. So this is from an explainer of the case from Doughty Street Chambers. Um, so they say, Colin Rice J found that these tweets, so these are the tweets about Fox being a racist, had not caused Mr. Fox serious harm. There were multiple other probable causes of any damage to Mr. Fox's reputation, including his tweet in relation to Sainsbury's, his comments on Question Time in January 2020, and his subsequent public comments on racial issues. These included a tweet showing LGBT progress pride flags cut up and arranged into a swastika, for which he was suspended from Twitter, a tweet of himself photoshopped into blackface, and a flowing with blood tweet about racist unrest in the UK. B. So the judge, having ruled that Mr. Fox had not suffered serious harm for the tweets alleging that he was racist, the court declined to rule on the defences of truth and honest opinion, right? So this is why this is entertaining. To sue someone for libel, you have to prove, one, that your statement, you know, the statement was unfounded, and two, that the statement damaged their reputation. And what's happened here is the judge has said, well, we're not even going to bother seeing if the if the the tweet was was founded because 
this guy's reputation couldn't get much lower, right? The judge seems to be suggesting that on the question of racism, Lawrence Fox, well, there's not much more damage you can do. One of the claimants in this case, Crystal, explained their reaction to the ruling. It's been three years in the making, but the long and short of it is I called Lawrence Fox a racist and he retaliated by calling me a pedophile. Um, the judge found yesterday that it, me calling him a racist was not defamatory and him calling me a pedophile was. So we've had a victory on all counts um, and it's incredibly liberating and satisfying after three long years of this. Why did you decide to take him to court? Because it's, it's a very long, arduous, challenging, mm. emotional ride, isn't it? Yeah, I think if I'd known at the outset that it was going to be three and a half years later that we'd still be talking about this, I, I may have thought twice, but um, honestly, he's, he, he's a bully, and, and accusations of pedophilia against people in the queer community, against drag queens, these are old, old tropes, and um, I didn't want to stand for it. I didn't want to let that slide. It, it, it honestly felt like if I didn't pursue this to the very end, that it was a tacit admission as well. I needed to, I needed to see it through and make it clear that there was no basis in fact to this. Crystal also gave an insight into Lawrence Fox's behaviour inside the court. What was he like in court? Erratic, uh, defensive. He used the N-word in the box. He, he defended blackface. He couldn't agree that saying I hate black people was a racist statement. It was really hard to watch. I mean, it's probably really hard for his lawyers to watch. Um, Helena, if you're going to court trying to claim that you've been falsely called a racist, um, then behaving in the way that Crystal described there doesn't seem like the most sensible strategy. The statements that he's made that would lead Crystal to make that reference the kind of things that he said in court is not really a great place to be uh, if you're if you're Lawrence Fox. But on a kind of more serious point, I think another thing that Crystal said about old tropes being resurrected, I think that's a really important point here. This kind of groomer panic, quote unquote, has been very frenetic on Twitter. And I think the rhetoric needs to be to simmer down quite a lot. This is something from the 80s about gay men coming for uh, coming for your children. And that's been part of the of a broader kind of right-wing tactic of using this to attack the gender diverse community. Of course, we remember all of these clips from Drag Queen Story Hour saying, well, how can we, how can children be around drag queens when it's been part of UK kind of culture for a very, very long time? We've had drag queens all over our media for a very long time and children have watched these in contexts that have been very child-friendly. It's not really been a problem, including, I think it was, was it Turning Point UK? Correct me if I'm wrong, who were having protests against pubs who had Drag Queen Story Hour going on, if I remember correctly. And on top of that, one of the other defendants was somebody from Stonewall. Now, Stonewall have also been hounded by people in the press, people within the media, people with public profiles for what they believe is the promotion of transgenderism in front of children, i.e. by having these things taught in school, by the idea of children being even being even being transgender there was a very recent story where both politicians and media figures alike were discussing a, a trans child going to school uh, as their gender they've transitioned to socially obviously not medically because they're too young but socially transitioned to that gender and there was an outcry from politicians and media figures about something as simple as that and so the idea that you know having gender diversity around children is something to be wary of has been part of the the discourse du jour 
And because of these continually heightened tensions on on both sides of this discussion, although as, as you can tell, I come down on one side of this discussion very heavily, a case like this happening eventually was always going to be the end result. The sort of moral panic about drag queens just seems, I mean, obviously it's ridiculous and offensive and sort of, you know, it's trying to target a minority with very sort of homophobic, transphobic tropes. But it's also just completely ridiculous because, you know, like the the pantomime dame is is such a, a sort of staple of British entertainment culture, as is sort of the likes of Lily Savage. And then people say, "Well, yeah, but they weren't sexualized drag queens." Have you ever seen a, a Lily Savage show? <laughs> right? Yeah, and sometimes they were late at night. Sometimes they were before the watershed. And guess what? Lots of shows which are sort of directed at kids. You know, people are smart, right? So you, you have a sort of innuendo which the parents might understand but the kids won't understand so like that has been a staple of family comedy in the uk for for a very very long time so to make it out that this is some sort of uh, craze of it's just it's it's completely completely bizarre um we like to be fair on this show lawrence fox gave his response outside the court let's take a quick look at part of it i asked in 2020 I asked for a jury because I think the best way of defining the meaning of, you know, how someone is and what, what the perception in the court of public opinion, which is actually more important in many ways as this court is proving, is, is somebody a racist? Ask a jury, be tried by a jury of your peers. But we've ended up with a judge who has sat there and has said, I'm not going to define the meaning of the word racist. So how can you enter into a defamation trial without knowing what it is you'll be drained out. So essentially what we got after, you know, several million quid is a nothing burger again. So as I was explaining before, I, I think the part that sort of Lawrence Fox is misunderstanding is the judge didn't rule on whether he was a racist because the, the case um, failed on the first count that he didn't think it could have damaged his reputation because his reputation was already very low. Um, because I suppose because you'd say lots of the public already think he's a racist, so calling him a racist doesn't doesn't matter that much. I was actually thinking about this because I, you know, I I don't necessarily want to sort of get massively behind the the sort of libel system in this country. I think it, you know, it's very difficult to, to to get through if you don't have much money. It is one way where sort of celebrities can bully people with with, with less money than them, sort of get them to cough up for I think in in many cases saying something quite quite reasonable. Um, no defences of Laurent Fox, of course. No sympathy for him whatsoever. My worry, though, about the way this case was done is that I was thinking about Jeremy Corbyn, right? So people are often saying, you know, Jeremy Corbyn should have sued the people who called him an anti-Semite. But you could imagine a court case where the judge said, well, I'm not going to look at the truth of this. I'm not going to look about whether you are an actual anti-Semite. I'm going to say your reputation has already been damaged so much by this Panorama documentary, by all of your backbench MPs, that enough of the public think you're, you're anti-Semitic. So it's unlikely um, that this tweet could have changed their mind. So, you know, obviously it's easy to watch this when the, when the subject of it is, is Lawrence Fox, who, as I say, seems to be one of the most unpleasant people in the country. Um, but just to sort of... This isn't, I think in celebrating the downfall of Lawrence Fox, we shouldn't necessarily sort of say yay for, for British libel laws. Let's go to our final story of the evening. Angela Rayner has appeared on Good Morning Britain and she was asked about last week's protest for a ceasefire at a Labour fundraising event. On Friday, you were driven away in a police car after you and um, your colleague Jonathan Reynolds confronted by... Uh, pro-Palestine supporters and campaigners. 
Um, the groups heard shame on you chanting. You'd been at a fundraising dinner in Stockport. That event was interrupted um, and a woman was filmed shouting, what kind of feminist are you? 15,000 women and children dead and you tout yourself a modern day feminist. There is strong feeling, isn't there? And I understand that strong feeling. I would do everything I possibly could to stop what's happening what in the Middle the East. On a but, the, but that is not going to stop. Realistically, what, what we're trying to do at the moment mm -hmm. is bring about a ceasefire, bring about the release of those hostages and bring about a two-state solution for that area. I would okay. give everything to make that happen. I'm a mother myself. I've been, you know, looking at what's happening in that region for many decades as a trade unionist, let alone as a member of parliament. I would do whatever it takes to get to that position. We are trying to do that. And in mm -hmm. fairness, every single member of yeah. parliament wants to see that. Would I don't you, think there is any member of parliament so in the UK that wants to, to see that. So can you those protesters why you won't vote for it? Because we're trying to bring about the situation by diplomacy, by working in the region. We've met with ambassadors, we've met with Palestinian families, we've met with the Israeli ambassador, we've you met with the Palestinian ambassador. You think it would be an empty gesture is what you're saying, isn't it? It's not going to make it okay. happen. That was the biggest piece of crap I think I've actually heard since the start of this war. You know, because it's just absolute hot air. And, you know, it, it's kind of even worse than that because it's active misinformation about the UK's role in this because she's sort of suggesting, you know, to be fair, everyone in Parliament really wants this to end. They want peace. Like, you kind of have a role as, you know, in Parliament. She's, if, if, if she wanted to do anything for a ceasefire, she could have goddamn voted for one. But you also do have a sort of educative role. You know, if you're an MP, you're speaking to the public, you have, I think, a responsibility to kind of explain how the world actually works, not trick people. And... What's going on when it comes to the UK, you know, run by Parliament, run by RMPs and Israel? We aren't acting for peace. We are giving Israel pretty much unconditional support. We're giving them diplomatic cover. We are helping to distract from a provisional ruling from the International Court of Justice, which said um, that Israel is potentially um, committing genocide, right? This is, uh, Britain is deeply implicated it's not like, oh, it's too complicated. We're asking them very nicely. You know, um, you know, we, we, we might not be able to stop it, but at least we're not fueling it. No, we are fueling it, right? And Angela Rayner is actively, proactively hiding that. I think it's completely despicable. I also thought it was somewhat um, unfortunate. You know, I don't want to impute motives, but sort of uh, I think the more powerful point that Susanna Reid could have, could have brought out there was not what the sort of female protester was saying, but what the, the protester at the front was showing, which was pictures of his family who had died in Gaza, which I think is, you know, really the most powerful part of that protest and, you know, the most despicable um, element of Angela Rayner's response, which is that she sort of sat back while that guy got dragged off. Um, speaking of the ICJ, Angela Rayner was also um, asked about the provisional ruling from the World Court. What do you think of the use of the word genocide in relation to what's going on in Gaza right now? As we well, speak? I think the ICJ ruling is very serious and I think it puts the marker down. It stopped, you know, from actually saying that's where we're at the moment, but it was very clear that the humanitarian crisis we see at the moment unfolding in Gaza for the Palestinians is really serious. Do you think there are aspects of genocide in the dictionary version of genocide? I don't, I don't know. Mm. You know, the ICJ is the right place for that to be determined. Now, I'm actually going to say a, a half defence of what Angela Rayner said there, because 
I think when you're asked, is what's going on in, in, in Gaza genocide, saying I don't know is actually not a completely unreasonable answer. You know, I, 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 I'm very happy to say what's happening there is, a, is appalling. I think it's a genocide or war. Is it a genocide? I mean, I think South Africa put forward a convincing case, but, you know, I, I don't have certainty, right? And, and so I think that part of the answer wasn't completely unreasonable. But the context is Angela Rayner doesn't know if it's a genocide. Meanwhile, her colleague, right, who has said that sort of Gaza is a genocide, a completely reasonable position, was kicked out of the party for saying that, right? So kicked out of the party for saying something that Angela Rayner doesn't know whether it's true or not. If, if you're going to say, I don't know, then at least you know say it's legitimate to say one or the other. You can't at, uh, at one point say, I don't know if it's a genocide, but also it's completely illegitimate to call it a genocide. That, those, those two positions are completely inconsistent. Um, Helena, I mean, when it comes to the Labour Party, sort of, I, I do sometimes feel like I want, I want to complain about them less because it's boring. But when it comes to Palestine, I kind of can't help it because I'm just so infuriated when I watch it. Not just because the stakes are so high, but because it's just so dishonest, right? This it, it's not a sort of difference of opinion about whether or not you know water should or shouldn't be nationalised. It's we can see something in front of our eyes. And Labour politicians are just denying it. They're, they're lying to us. I mean, it is basically what every single Labour Party position is at the moment. The metric is not, is this the correct and or moral and or ideological thing for us to support? It is what is most likely to win us the next election. Now, I don't think that's necessarily true. 70% of the people in the country support a ceasefire in Gaza. So I'm not even sure that their position that they're trying to take here is necessarily the correct tactical one. And I wanted to go even further on your point there when you said that I think it's fine to say that you don't know in a complex legal situation like the definition of whether what's happening is a genocide. But I was going to say, obviously there's the, the comments about chaos more, absolutely correct. But on top of that, if you think that there's a possibility, given her own answer, that there could be a genocide going on, why are you still backing us sending arms to Israel? It doesn't make any sense at all. And on top of that, she said, well, we need to make sure that even more humanitarian aid is going in. Yet her own party's position is to support the removal of funding from UNRWA in response to allegations by Israel amongst a very tiny proportion of their members' involvement on October the 7th. My second point I wanted to make is about her comments regarding the ceasefire, saying, well, we need to get hostages free and, you know, that us just saying a ceasefire does nothing, it's potentially performative. Well, the first step towards having a hostage deal is to ensure that the fighting stops, which regards, which means you need to have a ceasefire. I mean, um, regardless of what you think about him, I have very low opinions of him, but regardless, Osama Hamdan of the Hamas Politburo was doing a, uh, it was a conference in Beirut recently, talking about the ideas of, well, we would like to see a hostage deal in response to an immediate ceasefire with international guarantees. And so there is clearly a route for calling for an immediate ceasefire so that a hostage deal can be made. And on top of that, there is already an admission amongst many people in the Israeli military that a military success in terms of removing Hamas isn't even among the cards. I mean, 80% of the Qassam Brigade's military strength is still there available. So this continued, this continued fighting, saying, well, if we just fight harder, maybe we'll get the hostages back, seems completely, completely unreasonable at this point. And we have to have a ceasefire so that we can have release, a release of hostages on both sides and stop the humanitarian crisis from getting any worse. I think that was very well put, Helena. Um, thank you so much for joining me this evening as ever. It's been a pleasure to be here as always. Thank you very much. And thanks to all of you for tuning in. Come back tomorrow for another show from 6pm. It will be me again. I'm not going anywhere. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. 
This broadcast is brought to you by Novara Media. Go to novaramedia.com support.